Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Herb Kabar, a mover and shaker in the history of University Hill in Boulder. The Hill has deep roots in the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, not just in music, but from alternative businesses to riots, and most notably, 3-2 Beer. Herb was the owner of The Sink and Tulagi, both legendary venues in Colorado music history. Full disclosure, I worked for Herb at Tulagi during my years attending journalism school at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Welcome, sir. My pleasure. You and your family moved to Boulder circa 1960. That's right. You had a wife and three kids in tow. Your father-in-law, Monroe Marks, uh -huh. was the one who brought you in. My brother-in-law and father-in-law knew about the sink from my prior involvement with the guy that owned the sink, Joe Bimeford. When Joe wanted to sell it, he talked to my brother-in-law about it. His name was Floyd Marks. He used to be a DA down in Adams County back years ago. He asked him if he wanted to buy the sink, and Floyd said, you know, I'd be interested. And it was kind of depressed at that time because Joe wasn't paying much attention to it. He was getting ready to open a new place in Boulder called The Lamp Post. He was putting most of his attention there. So they bought it with the intention of me coming out here to run the place. What was Boulder like as a community? A sleepy little college town? Pearl Street. And that's about it. 28th Street was just starting to develop. The McDonald's had just opened out there. Maybe a motel or something, but there wasn't very much on 28th Street. It was called a bypass <laughs> <laughs> to get by to go to Estes Park. Nothing resembling the People's Republic that we no, know today. No, nothing at all. It was completely different. Boulder grew substantially from the time that IBM started hitting the town. The university always was pretty big. It got bigger, obviously, over a period of years. But the influence of the IBM plant coming and being built here had a big influence on the Boulder community in whole. Contributing to cultural history, you introduced the legendary sink burger at the sink and the <laughs> sink sauce. Do you take credit for that? No. <laughs> there was a company in Denver that developed this recipe. They were a canning company. They did commercial work for people who wanted their own label on things. I used to go down there every so often with my car and load it up with cases. We'd order the sink sauce and they'd have it ready when I got there. It was pretty unique stuff, that hickory flavor. That's right. It was unique. I never particularly cared about it myself, but the customers <laughs> liked it, and I wasn't buying it for myself. <laughs> the sink used to be called the Sunken Gardens back in that's the correct. 40s and, and that's, 50s. That's where the name the sink came from. Evidently, there was a sunken something. College kids have a way of shortening names, and they figured the sink would be a good way of getting rid of the sunken part. The plumbing was painted bright red. Red and black. There was a lot of it. <laughs> a lot of exposed pipes, fraternity symbols burned into the walls, people signing the walls, murals from Lloyd Cavish. Lloyd Cavish was a good friend and an amazing artist, a little crazy, from Omaha, Nebraska. He spelled his name Lloyd with three L's. That's right. Just That's... for the L of it. <laughs> <laughs> that shows you how crazy he was. He did a good job for what he had to do. There was another fellow who was a friend of his from Denver who came up and worked with him. 
and they would stand back from the wall and envision what they wanted to put on there. And they'd talk about it and think about it. And then they'd get together and do it. And a lot of beer was consumed. I never realized how much beer could be consumed well, by a limited number of people. <laughs> this was before the counterculture set in. A college town, you got a bunch of uh, active students, and 3-2 beer was the rocket fuel. But it could be drank by those 18 and over. Assuming most of them were 18 when they came to college. It was really a great social thing for them. 3-2 beer, the alcohol percentage, low alcohol beer. You could drink a lot of that stuff. <laughs> low, yes, you can. And the only alcoholic beverage that was legal for a time within Boulder City limits. It wasn't just the 18-year-olds, but anyone. That's all they could buy in the city of Boulder. And that dated back to the 50s. Friday afternoons were something to behold. FAC. Beer goggles. <laughs> the Friday afternoon club, the FAC. You used to turn kids away. There was no room to stand. It was mind-boggling. Friday afternoon started about 11 o'clock. <laughs> Is it urban legend, Herb? I've heard over the years that the sink was in the Guinness World Book of Records for beer consumption, either hourly or annually or something of that nature. Well, I've been told that. I've never had any justification for it. But regardless whether it's right or not, we sold hundreds and hundreds of cases of bottles of beer, and most of them were quarts of beer. We'd have to have two deliveries from Coors every week. We were out of Coors by Friday night, and we had to wait till Saturday morning to get it delivered to us. And on football weekends, it was tough because we opened up early on Saturday morning for football crowds, and they didn't have any beer to and, drink. <laughs> and they were thirsty, yeah. <laughs> I remember during the Friday afternoons, one of the staff positions was someone who tapped kegs exclusively. No break, tap a keg and another one was empty and just going through the cooler. It was amazing to me. I lived in Ohio before I came out here. We had 3-2 beer there too, but they didn't sell even close to the kind of beer that we sold. It might also be apocryphal, Herb, but the story is often repeated that Playboy magazine rated the top party schools in the country. I uh, can the, see why. In the late 60s, and they excluded the University of Colorado, saying no sense lumping the amateurs in with the professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's probably a lot of truth to that. <laughs> Describe the layout of the sink. As you walked in, there was a collective area. That there was a bar that held maybe a dozen seats. And then there was a wall. And the wall let you into the back room where the tables and chairs were at. When you went in, you thought you were going into the basement. In fact, it really was a basement at one time. But it was very low ceilings. It went all the way through the whole place, all the way to the alley. We had people seated. The faucet room is where the bands performed. What were the bands encountering? The room was nothing but a room. Just walls on one side, a little wall on the one end, and an entry wall on the other end. <laughs> and we'd have little groups. It couldn't be very big because the stage area wouldn't hold them. They wouldn't try out. They'd just play. <laughs> you know, we couldn't pay them very much. If, if we had to pay them, sometimes they'd work for nothing. Just wanted a chance to play. There was a group, Zephyr. Zephyr, Tommy Bold. They turned out to be a national group. Got their start in that back room. 
and Tommy was woefully underage at that point. I have no knowledge. Yeah. I plead. Pleading the innocent. fifth. Plead. As I recall, he was a very nice young man. I thought he was real quiet, nice looking kid. He's had loads of talent. It was a thing that I had built about five or six years after I got there as an entertainment area. We had bands that would play up okay. there once in a while. <laughs> Local bands, primarily? We couldn't bring in national bands yet. No. <laughs> there weren't room for them. <laughs> but a case could be made that that was ground zero for live music. Well, it really was. There was a real interest in music at that time. It was the end of the folk era. And rock and roll was coming really strong, really getting big time. So everybody was interested in that kind of music. And people even like jazz, too. They still like jazz. Names like the Love Whips and the Skanks. S-K-A-N-X. Very clever. Uh, I remember they were customers of mine. <laughs> they used to come in all the time, and then they said they had a group. I guess, why don't you come and play? So they came and played. <laughs> Did the astronauts ever play the sink? No. no. I knew them all. They were all customers. The drummer, Jim Gallagher, was a babysitter for my son Jimmy. We knew Jim's parents, Mary and Rob Gallagher. He was the salesman at the Cadillac dealer. They did play the Tawagi, though. Yeah, actually recorded an album. had a local group on FAC, a group called the Imperials. And then they played Tulagi, played around the whole area, as far as I know. So you elevated your fry cook, who was then the manager, to book bands. Chuck Morris was interested in the music business, and you provided him an opportunity. He worked at the sink as a manager, and then the Tulagi deal came up several months after that. Tulagi was a dance club up to that point, correct? Yeah, that's when, right. Did you buy it out of bankruptcy? Or? No, I bought a good deal on it, that's all. Pardon? January 71. And Tulagi, named after one of the Solomon Islands? That's right. There's a lot of urban legend around that, that one of the previous owner's sons had died there in World War you know, II. The Imels owned it before me, the building anyway. A fellow named Rex Bailey was involved in the Tulagi too. They said something about that one of their kids was involved in some action on the island of Tulagi. I never got the full history of it. Though. Yeah. The one thing that did endure was that tropical painted mural that served as the stage backdrop. Kind of iconic. Yeah, it was iconic. Nobody liked it, though. <laughs> How so? <laughs> it didn't look like it belonged in Boulder. Yeah, the not... stuff on the wall at the sink belonged in Boulder. And at Tulagi, national performers were brought in. Big live entertainment in Boulder. And that was an amazing time, a great model that couldn't even exist today. Bands could stay at the University Inn for $9 a night or so. It was a lot less than it is now, I know that. <laughs> and they would be booked for five nights, not just one. That's right. Tuesday through Saturday, and business might be slow for the first few nights, but by Friday, the reviews had hit the campus newspaper and word of mouth had spread. And if the act was any good, the weekends were sellouts. That's right. It was amazing to me 
we could have made a lot more money if that was the most important thing in the world. If we would have, on the weekends, held two shows instead of one show or two shows without only charging for one. Let's put it that way. But we only charged for one time to come in and stay the whole night. We had to close at midnight. The same rules applied as they did for any other 3-2 place. Tulagi hosted all genres of music, not just rock, but folk and country. That's uh, right. Seeing the Earl Scruggs review. Blues, even comedy. Steve Martin showed up. He came with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Pulled up in his white Porsche out front with his banjo in the back seat. Well, I'm ramming, 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 Linda Ronstadt came right. to early on. REO Speedwagon was a band from Illinois, a bunch of kids who decided to go hiking before the show, and they had never seen the mountains before. And the weather turned, and they got lost, probably not by anyone else's standards, but they were a bunch of nervous flatlanders. And they ended up writing the song Ride in the Storm Out, which became their concert closer. ZZ Top, that little old band from Texas. ZZ Top. They, they made more noise than anybody else in the world. <laughs> they were loud. They bowed the doors in the back of the club. I didn't, I don't know how the neighbors could handle it. They were all kids that lived back then. I guess that's why. They played what was ostensibly their very first gig out of Texas at Tulagi. Really? And cleaning up afterwards was a big memory for me. It was wooden pews. Beer was served in paper cups, peanuts in the shell, uh -huh. right? And at the end of the night, we'd push the pews to one side of the room and sweep up, repeat, the other side of the room. The only time we didn't do it that night after the show was for ZZ Top. We were so exhausted after the crowd that they drew. If you recall, pretty rough and tumble group. We came back the next morning to clean, and I don't know if a guy snuck his dog in or if he was just too lazy to make his way through the crowd to the bathroom, but there was a pile of crap up next to the stage, <laughs> and I've never been able to listen to ZZ Top's music the same way since, Herb. <laughs> Bonnie Raitt was the only artist who ever picked up a broom and helped the crew clean up. She was a real lady, a real good person, and she went out with all the kids and was sweeping up the place. It was amazing. She was quite a girl. Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks played at Tulagi. 
Any recollections there, Herb? He was a nut. <laughs> he was a good musician and all that, but he was a nut. And then we had him come back a second time. I didn't know why we did it, but it was in May at the end of school. And he's walking around Boulder with a camel hair coat tucked around his neck, and it's 95 degrees outside. <laughs> Somebody asked him why he had that coat on. He says, because every pocket's got a bottle of whiskey in it. <laughs> and was there an instance where it was hard to find him before the show? Oh, yes. So I didn't know was, where he was at. <laughs> it was showtime, and he was nowhere to be That's found. That's right. And where did you find him? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't involved in the search. <laughs> okay. I recall that he was on campus hanging from a tree around <laughs> Mackey Auditorium. Doesn't shock me. <laughs> He was a character all his own. An Indian girl once said, while making Indian cornbread, the eagle flies, take a his head, flies and go. Keep moving, keep safe cracking, Big Bob was on a heavy job. He heard a noise, said, come on, boys, let's go. Recollections of Harry Chapin? We had booked Harry Chapin, but I'd already sold the place when he came to play. I sold it to some other fellows that bought it at the end of 1973. He was a good entertainer. Just a one-man deal. Could command a room. Yeah. Martin Mull and his fabulous furniture. I fired him in the middle of the week. <laughs> How so? Well, there was no show. It was... Martin Mull up there with a bunch of furniture. <laughs> He's more of an actor than he is a comedian or a singer. I beg to differ, Herb. I thought it was pretty damn funny. You could just look at furniture just so long. Doc Watson? Oh, Doc Watson was so great to have. He told me about the best bourbon biscuit to buy, which I didn't drink anyway, but... An amazing flat-picking guitarist, arguably oh, the greatest in the it world. It was unbelievable. His son used to play with him. Merle. His son died? Yeah. Tractor accident. It wasn't that oh. much longer afterward. My personal idol, Randy Newman. We had a new guy coming in to play at our place. And when Jim Croce's plane crashed and everything, we needed somebody to fill the spot for that week. And they felt obligated to send Randy. And they're both managed by the same the people in California. That's why he was there. Very far away in the foreign land. There's a yellow woman and the yellow man. We have to talk about Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids. Those guys ruled Boulder for about a six-month period, started Gross Night, packed the place, legendary for their skin-to-win twist contests where the entire place got naked. They ended up being banned for 25 years from Boulder. I believe you were shut down for three nights. Just yeah, we got shut down for, well, <laughs> it was a wet t-shirt night. I didn't wet know that any clothing was involved. <laughs> <laughs> wet t-shirt night. <laughs> That's what I recall. 
And the till showed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It got shut down. I have specific memories of Les McCann playing Tulagi. Les McCann was a real great jazz pianist, one of the best. People loved him. He I, also had certain demands to perform. Who, he did? Yeah. He had the ladies lined up outside the dressing room until the juices ran dry. He wouldn't perform until... You weren't privy to that, huh? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> is the motivation that is hanging up the goddamn nation looks like we always end up in a rut everybody now trying to make it real compared to what come on baby which of the blues guys was your favorite this was an amazing time for the blues oh muddy waters is incredible he's a nice man very nice man lightning hopkins played James Cotton, Sonny Terry, and Brownie McGee. They were really great guys. And I had a chance to get Arlo Guthrie to play for one night. But we already had Terry and Brownie booked. Mm -hmm. And I talked to their management, and they said, well, can we play back up to him? So I said, sure. <laughs> and it's okay with him. And he was a friend of their father's, so we had a great show, as it turns out. They were great guys to work with. My take on that a Jewish kid from South Africa, Al Gordon. Al G is what we called him. One of the funniest people I ever met. <coughs> he liked to rhyme like his idol, Muhammad Ali. And Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee were a venerable blues act. And if you recall, one of them was crippled uh -huh. and the other one was blind. So all week long, Al bugged him, said he wanted to introduce him from the stage. And they were sweet guys. They humored him all week long until finally the very last night they acquiesced. And Al got on stage and simply said, one can't walk and one can't see Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. <laughs> <laughs> walk on, 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 walk on. I'm gonna keep on walking till I find my the Eagles played their very first gigs in Colorado. Their manager didn't want them in public until they had woodshedded. To get a feel for performing. So he sent them to Aspen and then to Loggie. It was Christmas break of 1971. Five nights, all the students were gone. And I remember one night the heat went out and Bernie Ledden had to play his banjo with gloves on. Those guys were so confident to the point of being cocky. They sat at the bar drinking 3-2 beer, saying, we're going to be the biggest band on the planet. We're going to sing better and write better than anyone else. And I'm thinking, there's 30 people here tonight. You guys are total dopes. And <laughs> nine months later, they were on the bill at the Denver Coliseum. That's right. Playing that hit song, Take It Easy.
Things changed around 1973. The music industry started superseding the music itself. The concert industry specifically, it's been described as the music mafia run like a cartel. The most powerful promoters ran their respective markets. Someone once said it was just like the mob, only without the violence. And I said, what do you mean, without the violence? It was just like the mob. Barry Fay was that person in Colorado, and Chuck Morris went with him to open his own nightclub in Denver. Chuck was pretty charismatic as a young man, but it's always haunted me how that ended. He kind of showed his true colors by not just quitting or leaving, but he had to destroy the guy who gave him his break, in my opinion. I really haven't thought a lot about it. You know, everything runs its time, and maybe his time with Chuck had run out. He had other things that he had to do, and he went his way, and I went my way. I still talk to him occasionally. I don't talk business to him, and he doesn't talk business to me. Times had changed regarding the clientele as well. It used to be students and bohemians who liked spending afternoons in the dim light of the sink and the luggy. But the drug scene, the street people in the 70s, that hurt business as well. There's no question about it. The sororities were going down, fraternities were going down. The way people looked was definitely going down. Even in the 60s, the Vietnam War years, we had lots of hippies going through here. But it was a different thing when this next change. It was a completely different thing. They were starting to clean up a little bit, and the hill was starting to make a revival. But it still never came back. You need a good reason to go there now. Where it used to be, that's where you automatically went. You sold Tulagi to three men who ended up defaulting on the lease, and the club changed hands several times after that. Yeah. You held on to the sink until 1992. You've led a full life, Herb. I had a lot of it. I used to be an usher at Red Rocks back in 1952 and 53, when the symphony had control of Red Rocks, and they'd have guests come in. There were some dancers from Russia, the Moiseev dancers, that were underneath a curtain, and they, they didn't look like they were even moving their feet, and they danced all over the place. It was very unique. This goes back a long time. And you were an usher. An usher for the Denver Junior Chamber of Commerce. Fantastic, Herb. I knew we'd wrangle something out of you that we didn't know. <laughs> You're how old now? 92. God bless, man. What's your favorite musician's joke? What do you have when a group of concert promoters are up to their neck in wet concrete? I don't know, Herb. Not enough concrete. <laughs> <laughs> Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support for music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com. <laughs>